Welcome to Sastery in the Making, the podcast that features the people who made the software world what it is today and the leaders who are shaping the future of technology. Here's your host, Matt Wallach. Okay, I have questions for you. Have you ever wondered when the right time to seek investment for your startup is? Or how can you make your company look really attractive to investors? And what do you even put in your pitch deck? All of your startup fundraising questions will be answered on today's episode. This is Sastry in the Making. I am your host, Matt Wallach, and I am delighted to be joined today by my special guest, startup fundraising expert, Melinda Elmborg. Melinda, thank you for coming Hi. on. Hi, thanks for having me. This is really exciting. <laughs> Good. I'm excited to have you. So let me tell you all a little bit about Melinda. She is super, super awesome when it comes to startup fundraising. First of all, she's the founder of Startup Action, where she coaches startup founders. And she's really an expert at startup fundraising and investments and helping them get the money that they need. It's really, really cool to see her in action. She learned all this because she's a former VC investor at Daphne. That's a fund of about $180 million that invests in seed and Series A investments. And she's currently collaborating with multiple different accelerators across Europe. And some of these are Sting and Fast Track Malmo and Startup Norway, lots of them. She's really, really sharp. And a lot of people turn to her for her advice. So once again, Melinda, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So I really want to know what you've been doing lately and what's coming up. Yes, lately over summer, I've spent a lot of time helping founders get ready for their rounds that they're going to raise now in the fall. So a lot of pitch deck feedback and working out like the perfect pitch deck slides and also doing these. I love doing these mock investor meetings where I we role play and I act like I'm an investor like I was before. And then I take notes during the meeting and tell them what they need to change in how they talk to investors. And then I've taken all of that because I felt like I was repeating a lot of the same things all the time to founders. So I put that together in an investment package with a lot of like templates and videos explaining all this, making it a little bit more efficient and cost efficient as well for founders. And then next up now, the new plan is to... Uh, I'm working on doing a Facebook group. My mission is to democratize access to venture capital for founders. And there are a lot of really good communities for founders that are bootstrapping, but I think it's really lacking for founders who are fundraising. So that's why today we created the Facebook group, Founders That Fundraise. Oh, just today? Yes, today. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, yeah, so everybody here... No. <laughs> oh, I am so honored to be the first to know. That is amazing. I am really excited. So that's very cool. I have a Facebook group myself focusing on software and SaaS and growing mm -hmm. your SaaS. So I think that's really, really important. People need to know how to get investments. So I'm so glad that you that you have that group. Good for you. Yeah. Very, very cool. And I love what you said earlier about role-playing. We talk a lot about making sure that you're growing within the sales aspect mm -hmm. of your business. That's what a lot of people who are listeners have heard on the show a lot of times. And one of those things that's super important to do is to role-play. You should be role-playing your demos to get to know how to interact with your prospects, with your buyers, role-playing your sales calls. But I've never heard of role-playing with an investor, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you only have one chance to make a good first impression on an investor. So you don't want to fail that first pitch. Absolutely. That's so cool. I think that's great that you're doing that. What I want to know, what led you 
to want to work with startups, Melinda? When I was younger, I tried like taking the traditional path working in like cor- big corporations, but I just felt like, no, this is not for me. I cannot sit in this office and like wait for five years to become a manager and, and have some kind of dynamic work life. So that's why I started, I first started looking into like consulting jobs because I felt felt like, yeah, that's, then you get to move on on different projects and stuff. But then I discovered VC and it was just such a good match with Daphne. They were looking for someone who was speaking Swedish. So I am originally from Sweden, but who wanted to work in their Paris office and also speaking French. So it was just a perfect match. And so I started working there and discovered the world of startups and tech. And I just fell in love. Like things are just moving so fast. Everything can happen like in a month. (laughs) That's what I really, really like about this space. It is very fast moving. That's really, really neat. And I think it's great that you had that desire to be a part of startups. And I had the same sort of path. I was working with big companies and, you know, it was kind of funny if I had a great day or if I had a terrible day, mm. it didn't really impact the company one way or the other. Yeah, and exactly. so it kind of got me down a little bit. It's like, why am I even here? So once I went into the startup world, if I had a good day, that really impacted the company. If I had a bad yes. day, that really <laughs> impacted the company. So one way or the other, I was going to make an impact, hopefully more up than down. But it really was a lot more exciting and gave me a lot more motivation to say, hey, I want to make sure that I'm doing a great, great job. Yeah. So that's cool. It sounds like you had the same experience. Yeah, exactly. And I also love like how among startups, you can be so innovative and think like so far outside the box, like no limitations. You do whatever you want, you know, <laughs> compared to like in a traditional job, it's like you need to stay within your role and stay within what is decided by the company, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more dynamic for sure. And Mm. speaking of startups, you know, one of the things that startups are aiming for right out of the gate is that product market fit, wanting to make sure that they've achieved that. So, So how does a company know that they've achieved product market fit? Yeah. So I've been working a lot on product market fit because I didn't like how it was such a abstract uh, subject. Like, I don't like abstract subjects. I want it to be straightforward and you go from point A to point B. So I've dived into that. And actually, product market fit is something that you can measure. It's not abstract. It's not like, oh, I feel it in the air. You know? <laughs> and I think it's a long process to get to the real product market fit. It's not something that happens directly. And that is, I think, something you need to be very aware of when you go out and build your startup. But I would say the first step is to making sure you solve a problem and like a big problem for your audience can be any kind of audience and not like a nice to have, but really a need to have that people are like, yes, this is my number one problem that I think of every day when I come to work. And so it's great to have a wait list. So that can be a proof of a very early product market fit. Next is to, I think it's great to work with the product market fit survey. I guess you've heard of that one. It's the, how would you feel if you could no longer use whatever product? And the people have the option of answering very disappointed, quite disappointed, not disappointed. And you want a high percentage as possible to say very disappointed. Like this would be painful if you would disappear because you're so helpful for my life. So that is one next step of product market fit. And then... The third step, I would say there are four steps. 
The third one is then you can get more into data because you start to have some history. As you can see at retention, like do they stay around or do they come in and then they just leave or do they stay around for month after month after month? Uh, also, if you're having like a more as enterprise SaaS where you lock customers in for three years, then you can rather look at frequency, looking at how many days per week are they using the tool. So if you do a SaaS, you want them to use it five days a week, basically. For sure. And then the last one would be that you have a good LTV CAC ratio, because then if you're getting the money back that you're investing in acquiring the customer, then you have nothing that can stop you from scale and you can just push the gas and go ahead and scale. I agree. And just to make sure that we clarify for everybody, the LTV to CAC, lifetime value to customer acquisition yes. cost. Sorry. No, I know. I know. I, a lot of people know that. I just want to make sure we're hitting all bases yes. so everybody can get that. So what in your mind, what is a good LTV to CAC ratio for a company looking to seek investment? Yeah. So the benchmark in the industry is known to be around three and four. So if it's been below two, when I was an investor, we said no to invest. That was a reason to not invest. But then I've also seen startups that have been crazy much higher than that, been like at 20 or something. For me, that either it means that it takes very long time for them to get back, like the payback time is long to get back the customer acquisition cost. So even though it seems high, but they don't feel it in their wallet yet, or it's just that they don't invest in growth enough and that they have like a big potential. That's what I see when I work with startups mm. and they have a really high LTV to CAC. I'm saying you, if this is like this, you need to put more money into your, into your business, yeah. more money yeah. into growth, but more money in marketing, more sales, because you've got the numbers to make it happen. Let's drive mm. some growth. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. That's great. So speaking of that, but when is the right time for a startup to start to seek funding? When do you think that they should start thinking, hey, we have an opportunity here. It looks like this business is working. Mm. Let's go out and get some cash infusion. Yeah. When is that? So I would not underestimate momentum. And it's so important to give the, the investor that feeling that, okay, but now is the time. So it's great if you have had like very constant and fast growth for four or five, six months or more, then that could be a good time. Or if you've signed like a new big client, or if you've signed a new exciting partnership, that's a very good time as well. Or I've also seen startups in a, when they are in an accelerator, they have a lot of momentum and there are usually a lot of investors around the accelerator. And I've seen founders even say that, okay, but we're not going to take an investment now and we want to wait until later and we've achieved more numbers or whatever. But then they lose that momentum that they had when they were in the accelerator. Mm -hmm. So don't underestimate a, a good momentum. That's great advice for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you then. So if you're a startup, you realize, okay, we've got some momentum. Let's get some dollars in the door. Mm. What can a startup do to kind of set themselves up for success when they're going out and seeking investment? Yeah. Number one is to focus on building a network and doing it long time in advance. Like don't get your pitch deck and everything done and you're like, yeah, I want to close in two months and then to go out and do meetings. Like you want to do it long time in advance because investors want to invest in founders that they like, that they built a relationship with and that they've start to trust. Uh, so it's almost never too early to go out and just start speaking to investors. And you don't need to have like for that first meeting, if you just go and meet them for a coffee. You don't need to have a pitch deck. You don't need to have all the numbers or anything. You can just have like a discussion and especially ask for advice. 
So go there and like, hey, I know you know this space. You've invested in these other SaaS startups. What should I do? This is the case that we have at the moment. These are the challenges or the, the decisions that we need to take in the moment. What do you think? Because then they feel like they are a part. They start to be a part of your journey when they give you advice. And especially even better is if you can take that advice, implement it, come back three, four or five months later and say, hey, we implemented it and it gave this. So then suddenly it's like they're part of your team, you know, because they helped you get, come to this, have this success. So that is something I really, really recommend. It works so well to do that. And also when you meet those investors, even if you don't have a big network, I mean, you just need to get in touch with like one or two investors and then you can ask them for like, hey, so I'm trying to just build my network to fundraise in six months or in a year. Who else do you think we should talk to? And the thing with investors is that they all know each other and they all speak to each other. So they know like, yeah. oh, but you know, I know this investor who is really likes your types of startups or this market or whatever. You should talk to each other. I'll do the introduction. Oh, that's so cool. And, and I love what you're saying. It's such good advice because investors, of course, they want to look at the numbers. And they're very analytical and data-driven, but they're still people. Yeah. And but they're they more still, people than data driven, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They still have that emotion. And if they help somebody, then they themselves become invested in the success of that business. So yeah. I think that's a super wise strategy, Melinda. That's amazing. Yeah. Another thing that I think you should think about is focusing a lot on traction and making sure that you will have that when you are going to fundraise. Yeah, I think that's absolutely critical. You mentioned earlier the pitch deck. A lot of startups and founders struggle with their pitch deck. Mm. You know, what do you see? What an investor, what would you recommend? What do you tell your clients what an investor is looking for from a good pitch deck? Yeah, that is a really good question. And I mean, first of all, you need to think about what is the pitch deck used for? So it's used for just giving the investor a first impression of your company and just getting you through the door, like getting you into a meeting. With the investor. So I recommend founders to have like a between 10 and 15 slides pitch deck as a teaser pitch deck. And there are three things that the investor looks for in there. So the first one is understanding what is your business doing and does this fit into my portfolio? So you need to explain like what is your market? Are you a fintech, a health tech, whatever tech, and what kind of technology are you doing? So they can like, oh, but we invest in B2B. So yes, this should fit in for us. Or this is an exciting space that we haven't yet invested in. So yes, I'll keep on reading. So that's number one. Number two is showing any type of proof. Like, so what proof do you have that I should trust you in all of these slides and the information that you give me? So there you need to show metrics and show like this nice growth curve or talking about partnerships or any clients that you have, like brag about the logos of those clients, for example. Would you even um, put testimonials in there? Client testimonials? Yes, you could. If it, you if you have really good numbers, I would put the numbers. But if you don't have many numbers and maybe you haven't focused on getting clients at the moment, you've been focused on building your product. So then you can instead show like frequency and retention and those kinds of numbers showing that people who use your product, they love it and they stay around. But if you don't have that, then you can get testimonials instead. So Makes it can sense. be a good okay. compliment to have some qualitative proof as well that okay. people really like it. And then number cool. three is how big could this be? Mm -hmm. So depending on the investor, if it's always if you're going to a VC investor, they all look to invest in future unicorns. Yeah. So you need to prove that with your business model and with the size of the market, you can reach at least 100 million 
in revenue, because that means you would have a valuation probably of 1 billion, so you're a unicorn. So that is like a good benchmark to keep in mind to have that somewhere in your slide deck. Sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then you have the business angels. They maybe care a little less about that. So it's it's important to know the investor you're sending the deck to and what you want to include. Absolutely, for sure. So what would you say is a, a common mistake startup founders make that really gets them in a bind and gets them in trouble as they're looking to seek investment and looking to grow? Yeah, so I think there are mainly two mistakes. So the number one is what we what I mentioned before, is that you don't spend enough time building the relationships with investors before you start to fundraise. Mm. And that is like, I cannot say it enough, like <laughs> go out, drink coffees or like do virtual coffees now, like <laughs> during these times, but network, network, network. It works so well. And then second is, I mean, being a first time founder and fundraise, it's super freaking hard. I know that. And one of the hardest things is just understanding the signals that you get from the investors and then understanding, okay, they said this, but what do they actually mean? And the most common mistake that I see that I had no idea about when I was an investor that I realized now when I'm coaching founders is that uh, investors are always super positive and friendly in Mm -hmm. investor meetings. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is really interesting. Yeah, maybe we could put this amount and let's have a meeting next week. And founders take that as a commitment. But it's actually like investors are always going to act that way and be really friendly and nice until they have a clear decision. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that decision is in most cases, no. I've seen data from a VC fund here in Germany and from that they meet a startup, like they have a meeting, they have a phone call and they have that like friendly discussion and the conversion rate to actually giving them a term sheet and doing an investment is 1%. Wow. One out of a hundred. Yes, exactly. So the investor is going out and meeting a lot of different founders. So you should do too. So keep on meeting investors all the time, all the time and never think that they have committed until they've actually given you a term sheet. That's amazing. I think that's a really great tip. I think that too many times I talk with startup founders and they say, oh, we met this one investor. We're really excited. It's probably going to happen. And it usually does not. So that's perfect proof that you're more likely to be one of the 99 than you are the one. Yes. So... Unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's just the facts of life. you know. But I love that advice of keep continuing to go out, go make relationships, make sure that you're making those connections so that when you do need it, you have to get some funds in the door. You've got the opportunity to do so. I think that's outstanding. Mm. Yeah. And you need to understand that fundraising, it's not like dating. You can be, go ahead, be unfaithful, you know, and meet as many (laughs) investors as you can, you know, and it's not until you have like the engagement ring on your hand, uh, which means like the term sheet (laughs) that you can actually start settling down. (laughs) I love it. That's great advice. We should put that up as your tagline, Melinda. I think that's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been really great. I think that this has been helpful and a lot of people are able to take this and apply this and, and go and run with it and go find some investment. So. How shall our audience get in touch with you? First of all, come and join the Facebook group, Founders That Fundraise. It's the Startup Action community. Then also you can go to my website, startupaction.co. And I have a lot of free resources. So I have a pitch deck template, for example, with the, wow. uh, lots of like reasons on what to put in your pitch deck and what and what not to put there. Then I write a lot on Medium. So I have a blog there with lots of articles. Everything is very... I'm very like 
hands-on and giving very concrete advice to founders. Yeah, if you want to get in touch with me and write me a message and say hi, uh, you can do that on LinkedIn. Okay, perfect. And I will put all that in the show notes as well to make sure everybody can address that. So if you're listening on the podcast, go ahead and click through and you'll see all that information. But once again, we've been talking with Melinda Elmberg from Startup Action. She is the expert for fundraising for startups. So Melinda, thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. And for everybody else, we will see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Sastery in the Making. Join us next episode for another look into how today's visionaries are creating the next generation of innovation.